Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of AR on the Go podcast. This is Mustafa Al-Habubi, an AIM physician. Today, I'm joined by a dear friend to my heart and a colleague, Dr. Fadl Hamouch. Dr. Hamouch. Hey, Fadl. How are you doing? Good, good. It's a pleasure to finally be able to do this. <laughs> I know we've been trying for a while, so it's, uh, I'm happy that we're finally able to do that. Yeah, me too, man. I mean, I mean, you're busy. Thanks for coming. Uh, no, of course, I, it's a pleasure. Yeah, Dr. Hamush is. Um, we, we used to be in residency together. We did some rotations together, and um, he's a recent graduate from Mega University um, Urology program, and he's a staff urologist now, uh, surgeon at McGill University. Fadl, uh, we agreed to talk about um, kidney stones, which is a yes. common presentation in emergency. Yes. Sure, I, I, I ask you about uh, the case you're going to share with us. I would like to remind our listeners that the cases discussed in this uh, podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be applied directly without the consultation of a medical specialist. And, and some details of the cases discussed are changed to protect the patient identity. After yeah. this introduction, go ahead, Father, please. Tell me our, your case. Sure. So thank you, Mustafa. So just uh, maybe I can add, you know, I, I did my fellowship on, um, in kidney stone, surgical and medical management. So I, you know, I have a special interest in, uh, in, uh, in the disease. And, uh, you know, I think my goal today is maybe just to go over the, you know, the relevant thing. So we're going to start with a very basic case uh, that any, you know, anyone can see uh, in the emergency. So, you know, we're going to say that it's a 35-year-old lady that shows up in the emergency department with the right flank pain, uh, a urine analysis with a little bit of blood, uh, some leukocytes, uh, nausea, vomiting, and uh, pain that's not managed uh, well at home. Um, she gets imaging, and we're going to talk about imaging. And then eventually she, found, she was found to have a um, five millimeter stone uh, at the UVJ. So I guess uh, it's a very, very common scenario. So maybe we can start by talking a little bit about uh, like stone presentation and then we'll take it from there. Okay, good father. Yeah, you, you're right. So we, we see commonly um, patients with uh, nephrolithiasis and emerge. Maybe every two or two, three shifts we see one or two patients. What's the presentation commonly for these patients? Yeah, so good point. So first of all, if you want to talk from a symptom perspective, the most common presentation is uh, nausea and vomiting. So classically, the, the the patients will describe that they can't tolerate anything uh, PO, and then eventually they will develop uh, uh, severe pain. And the pain in nature is very colicky. So it will come and go, it will come and go. And, you know, and it's something I see a lot in my clinic. A very large percentage of these patients, the second that they get into the emergency department and they start on conservative management, a lot of them, their pain subsides and eventually stops and they will never experience pain after because what happens is that when these patients present as i mentioned you know 60 percent of them present with a distal ureteral stone so by the time they get to the emergency they get iv fluids there's some diuresis that happens with the pain control it breaks the cycle of pain and a lot of them leave the emergency with no pain and eventually they pass the stone um, another common presentation is gross hematuria so, in fact, you know, when I was in fellowship, we looked back at our registry and we found that, you know, gross hematuria is, 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 the, is, is one of the top two common presentations uh, of people with kidney stones. So I think 
you know, we're, we're very teach towards, uh, obviously towards cancer, but, you know, when a patient comes in with pain and gross hematuria, I think kidney stone should be the first, uh, uh, the first etiology uh, to consider. Uh, so, yeah, so that's it from a, from, a, from a symptoms perspective. Obviously, there's the septic patient or the patient with infection. That's, that's a complete different scenario that we can talk about it in a second. Um, however, uh, I, I really want to emphasize, and maybe we'll, we'll get to it later, um, uh, Mustafa, is that most of the patients, when, when they present initially, they present with a distal ureter stone, and it's usually less than 10 millimeters. So usually it's between 5 to 10 or less than 5 millimeters. Why is this important? It's important because we need to understand that not all kidney stones are the same, not all ureter stones are the same, and they don't necessarily all require the same level of attention or the same urgency of intervention. So the classic teaching is that if you have a small distal ureter stone, these are the perfect candidates um, for uh, medical expulsive therapy and conservative management. That's not the case for larger stones, and that's not the case for more proximal ones. But uh, maybe let me pause here, and then we we can take you know we we can take it as we go. Excellent points, uh, Fadl. Thank you. Um, so just to be sure we I understood correctly, so you said um, gross hematuria should be thought as well, the most common cause. Uh, sorry, this uh, nephrolithiasis should be thought as the most common cause of gross hematuria, but here... Of painful gross hematuria, let exactly. me... So, of painful gross hematuria, correct. So, if you have a painless gross hematuria, these are the ones that are very scary. But, you know, for a painful gross hematuria, then yes, definitely this should be the, 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 the first um, etiology to have in mind. Excellent. Just to add, from my perspective, from a marriage perspective, uh, usually when you consult urology, the diagnosis is made already for nephrolithiasis. That is uh, correct. Exactly. For us, we deal usually with undifferentiated patients. And from my perspective, as an emerge doctor, uh, we try to think about ruling out red flags first. And in, in someone who comes with painful gross hematuria, even if they are young, for me, uh, I need to consider either dissection or leaking yeah. triple A. Uh, yeah. So if they're old and they're hypertensive, this should be the first on my list. Uh, if they're young, if they have risk factors, no, you know, case by case basis, but this should be always on the radar. Uh, I remember in, in, in one of the shifts, uh, a lady in her 60s presented uh, with right flank pain. Um, she was hypertensive. The working diagnosis at that time was nephrolithiasis. She's waiting CT scan. But then she had syncope, which uh, led to uh, examination by POCUS. And then she was found to have a triple A by POCUS. Then stat CT, the CT showed uh, leaking triple A. She was taking stat with the OR. So I, I think this is crucial from my, my perspective as, as eMERGE doctor. Um, otherwise, uh, Fadal, I'll move to a physical exam. Or uh, you, want, you want to talk about septic stones? I'll leave it up to you. Yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about physical exam. Sure, you know, like physical exam is is, uh, is important, like in everything. However, you know, I must say that in kidney stones, really imaging is what's key. Um, imaging will tell us really everything. Um, so, you know, when I examine a patient, obviously I want to make sure that they look fine. Sometimes you walk in the room and you can see that they're in so much distress. You know that even if this is a non-infected stone, you, you know that this is the kind of patient who needs something, needs an intervention. But sometimes, you know, you walk in and the patient is relieved. There's no more active pain. These are the candidates that are really good for observation therapy. So I think the first thing is really the, the, the clinical impression. You know, how does this patient eyeball? Um, this is the first thing. Obviously, vitals are very important. It's not uncommon to have an elevated blood pressure. 
with an acute renal colic. Uh, but uh, what really you want to see is fevers. So any fever in the context of a stone, of an obstructive ureteral stone, is an absolute indication to get urology involved as soon as possible. Uh, because we know that uh, infected stones, not necessarily septic, but infected stones, so a concomitant pyelonephritis with an obstructive etiology, uh, can lead to a devastating sepsis with a 20% mortality. And it's a shame because it's something that's easily reversible. So that's why, you know, you know, if a urologist is sleeping at home and you want to bring him, you know, and you want to bring him to the emergency at midnight, just tell him, you know, stone and fever and, you know, he, and he would be there in half an hour. So, um, you know, I think it's very, very important to, 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 uh, to highlight that really fever should be the one to, uh, to keep an eye on. From an imaging perspective, so CT scan is definitely the gold standard. I know we're going to talk about POCUS in a bit and ultrasound, which I'm a big fan of, but the, the, the true gold standard for diagnostics is a CT scan without contrast. And the reason we do it without contrast is because, you know, as you know, stones will look as a, as a hyperdense lesion on the CT along the ureter. So if you give contrast, especially for uh, kidney stone and sometimes the more distal stones, it's difficult to see them uh, because of the contrast of the blood vessels. So that's why when we do a CT non-contrast, this is really how we can highlight them as much as possible. Uh, so really the gold standard should always be a CT non-contrast. Now, a lot of these patients, when they come with abdominal pain or flank pain, they get a CT scan through other etiologies, you know, appendicitis or, uh, uh, or, 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 or or whatever. So they end up having a CT with contrast. So it's not uncommon that the first imaging modality is actually with contrast and we can still diagnose it. However, if you really have a high suspicion from the get-go for a kidney stone, you should go for a CT non-contrast. One other thing that's very relevant for imaging is that, um, depending on the centers, but most of the centers with high volume of stones, they do the CT scan prone. So they, they, they put the patient on their bellies and they scan them. And the reason we do that, because you know how, how I told you initially that 60% of the stones are distal. So sometimes you're not sure whether the stone is in the bladder or simply in the distal ureter, especially if it's, a, if it's at the junction, if it's, a, if it's at the UBJ, you cannot tell in a supine position. So when we scan the patient in a prone position, what happens is that the ureter becomes more anterior. So if the stone is truly in the ureter, it will look anterior. But if it's in the bladder, it will go to the most dependent portion, which is the most, which is which is the the floor of the uh, of the bladder. So just a you know a quick note that a lot of emergency centers they have the standard protocol for stones is prone. Interesting. I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah, for me. of course. So I'm going to take a step uh, to focus as, as you mentioned. So. There is some literature that suggests if you scan the patient by POCUS and this history yeah. is very typical and you see hydronephrosis, so most likely it's a, a coli, uh, it's a kidney stone and sometimes you can see the kidney stone, then yeah. probably you don't need a scan if the patient pain is tolerable and then you can send the patient for a scan as an outpatient, you know, with now with uh, the high uh, volume of patients we have in emergency. What yeah. do you think about this practice? Yeah, so, so in fact, you know, in my... Uh... In the center where I, where I trained, uh, you know, at UCSF, uh, a couple of years back, I think in 2016 or 17, they did a randomized control study where they randomized people to three arms, I believe. Uh, CT scan, focused by emergency physicians, and uh, so CT scan, focused by emergency physician, and a ultrasound by a radiologist. And then they, they, they compared the outcome. This is for classic people showing up with a, with a renal colic suspicion. 
Technically, what they found is that if you have a negative ultrasound, meaning if you put an ultrasound and your ultrasound is negative, there's no hydronephrosis, the chance of missing a urethral stone is low. Okay, so it's a good screening test in case you're not sure whether or not this patient actually has a stone. However, if you do have a hydronephrosis, so then we know that, yes, there's a suspicion that this patient has a ureteral stone. We know that the ultrasound is very limited for the assessment of ureteral stones. Why? Simply because it's difficult to follow the course of the ureter with an ultrasound because once you are past the UPJ, the ureter becomes retroperitoneal and it's behind the bowel. So when you're trying to do ultrasonography, it's very difficult to actually follow the course of the ureter. That's why when you see any ultrasound report, you will have a cut of the upper ureter on the kidneys and maybe a small cut of the UVJ and the distal ureter that you can see transvasically. But what's happening in the mid-ureter and the proximal part of the ureter, you, you cannot follow. So it's a good first-line imaging modality if the suspicion is low. And we do have data showing that a negative screening ultrasound most of the time will be consistent with a negative stone, meaning there will be no stones in the ureter if the ultrasound is negative on presentation. But if the ultrasound is positive, then I will make the argument that in an emergency setting, a CT scan is better because a scan gives you a lot more information on the stone, uh, on the density of the stone, on the consistency of the stone, the severity of hydronephrosis, where is it blocked, and it gives you a good follow-up. So if you ask me as a specialist, I will tell you I will definitely prefer to have a CT scan when the patient presents to the emergency. However, for follow-ups, and you know, a lot of my colleagues tend to repeat scans, I personally tend to get ultrasounds based on the study that I showed you. And if the ultrasound is negative, I usually try to spare the patients the scan. Interesting, interesting. Thank you for the question yeah. that. Um, before we jump into management, just a quick question about the investigation. So besides the, the urine and the bloods, um, I found when we send patients home, we give them um, um, a small bowl. So when they pee, if the stone comes yeah. out, we send for uh, analysis. And I'll admit to you, sometimes I'm, I'm guilty of not doing it. Um, tell me yeah. why do we do that and how important it is for the patient? Um so, so you're asking about the relevance of giving them a filter? Is that is that the question? Exactly. Okay, so, you know, for the investigation, I think, you know, uh, urine analysis, urine culture, a CT scan, uh, basic uh, blood work, being a CBC, looking for leukocytosis. And here, you know, it's very important to note that you can have leukocytosis up to 15,000, even if the patient's not truly infected. So a, 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 a non-infected stone can present with an elevated leukocytosis up to 12 to 15,000. So, you know, these numbers on their own should not be a reason to, to, to push us to intervene, but rather uh, uh, we know that these numbers can be seen just simply with the, uh, uh, with the stone. Uh, blood cultures, obviously, if the patient comes in septic, I like to get an X-ray in addition of the stone, CT, because uh, for multiple reasons. So when we get a KUB, so a simple abdominal X-ray in, in the emergency, um, one, we can assess the radiolucency of the stone because if the stone is radiolucent on the X-ray, when they come and see me in the clinic, I can very simply repeat an X-ray to follow the migration of the stone uh, or the passage of the stone and spare them a CT scan, especially when we know how, how difficult it is for us to get resources. But an X-ray is very easy to do. 
So I very, very commonly get an X-ray, even if I have a CT, and then I follow these patients with an X-ray. The other thing is that if you have a very large stone, and this stone is completely radiolucent on the X-ray, meaning you cannot see it at all, then there's a high probability that this stone is a uric acid-based stone. And if it's a uric acid-based stone, these stones are completely treated medically. These can be dissolved. They're the only type of stone that you can actually dissolve medically. So it's also one of the relevance of getting an X-ray in the emergency department. Now for the filter, uh, we do it routinely after shockwave procedure. We ask the patients also to do it in the emergency. It is important to understand that all the studies that looked at stone passage on medical expulsive therapy, they looked at a timeline of 40 days. So when we say, okay, you have a 95% chance or 90% chance of passing a distal stone less than five millimeter, it is correct. However, not over three days, but over a 40 days period. Because when you look at the studies, they really waited, you know, 40 days. And there was a study from China where they scanned the patients once a week, imagine for four weeks to really and truly document the migration of the stone. Interesting. Um, so, uh, so yes, I think giving a filter is good because catching the stone uh, is an important thing for the endourologist to be able to kind of tailor the medical uh, metabolic workup and also the, the, the medical management further on. Um, however, what's common being common we know that 80% of these stones, 85%, 90% of them will be simple calcium oxalate stones. Excellent. So I guess my message, you should not be very good. Excellent, excellent. Okay, thank, thank you for that. Okay, so I think we're done from the investigation. I'll jump to the management. Um, um, so besides uh, pain control, IV fluid, hydration, anything specific, uh, do you give always alpha blockers to, to your patients or in specific cases? So excellent question, uh, and it's a big dogma, and it's a big debate even among endourologists and stone specialists. But before I jump into that, I want to just highlight something on uh, management. So management, you know, IV fluid, medication for nausea, and pain control. Um, for pain control, that's what I want to highlight on. You know, in North America, we have a very low threshold in giving narcotics. Uh, and we know that there's a big narcotic uh uh, problem in North America and we know how in surgery and uh, in medicine and in every discipline actually of medicine uh, we are trying really to get away from prescribing opioids but however for kidney stone disease in a lot of North you know North American and Canadian centers opioids remain the uh, the first line treatment however what I want to highlight here is that there was a lot of studies and a lot of them were from the Middle East where they randomized patients to uh, opioids paracetamol IV, which we don't have, unfortunately, in North America, and anti-inflammatory like Toradol, whether IM or, uh, or, or, or IV. And technically what we found is that anti-inflammatories given in the emergency department have the highest yield of pain relief, more than narcotics and more than IV paracetamol. Now, this is, it makes sense because we know that the pain that happens after a renal colic is due to a stretch in the renal capsule and a change in the, in the, in the, in the, in the glomerular filtration uh, situation with an increase in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the pressure in the glomeruli. So by giving an NSAID, you, you, you disturb the, the, the prostaglandin chain and eventually you, you relieve that hydrostatic pressure. So physiologically, it makes sense why an NSAID is the, is the way to go. And I always give Toradol to my patients in the, in, the, in the emergency. Now, one of the things is that 
you know, people will argue, yeah, but a lot of them present with a bit of an AKI. They have been vomiting for a couple of days. They have an obstruction stone. But, you know, we, we, we've shown that, you know, even with a, with a, with a borderline EGFR, uh, obviously I'm not talking about severe renal failure, but, you know, even at the creatinine, let's say in the 100, 120s, they can still tolerate the NSAID very well and, and, and it still have the best uh, outcome in terms of pain control. So there's nothing wrong with opioids, but I just want to highlight that whenever you can give an anti-inflammatory, give an anti-inflammatory because it has been proven by level one evidence that it's superior to opioids and also it will help us kind of get away uh, from the whole opioid crisis. Interesting. I know that, uh, so, so in other words, if, if you, let's say, you're discharging the patient. Uh, usually yeah. when I discharge them, I give them, I don't know, five, 10 pills of opioids. Would you still do that or you just uh, discharge them on uh, on uh, NSAIDs and maybe give them kind of... Listen, if the, creatinine, if the creatinine is fine, I can discharge them on NSAIDs. I, I don't see any problem. Uh, you know, but obviously for a short course, you know, like for a couple of days, that's not a problem. And you can always prescribe a very short course of opioids as a rescue, you know, but we should, we should, we should get away from prescribing opioids on a regular basis uh, for these, you know, for these patients, because you know, like they all live with diluted and you know, oxycodone, five milligram, ten milligram, two milligram of diluted, like really high doses, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I want to go back to your question on Flomax. Yeah. So, so very good question. So, Flomax is an alpha blocker, and the the idea is that uh, the alpha blocker will dilate the ureter and it will eventually help pass the stone. So, and as much as we understand and like the concept, the reality is that there was a lot of systematic reviews, meta-analyses, randomized control trials, looking at it with conflicting evidence. So some will show that, in fact, it does help pass the stone, and some shows that it does not help pass the stone, right? So there's, there's a lot of conflicting evidence. However, however, it seems like the subgroup where the Flomax actually helps is the group where it's a distal ureteral stone and the size between five and 10 millimeters. So larger stones seems to benefit from Flomax. Why? Because the smaller stones most likely will pass regardless if, if they're on Flomax or not, right? That's why I think the benefit was really found in that, we, we, you know, what we call a large ureteral stone, which is between five and 10 millimeters. In my practice, <clears throat> uh, yes, I do prescribe Flomax especially for five to 10 millimeters uh, <clears throat> for that reason, because we, you know, we do believe that it helped pass the stone. However, also for a different reason is that we know that if these patients end up requiring an intervention, namely a ureteroscopy, uh, there was systematic reviews showing that people who are on Flomax actually have an easier uh, ureteroscopy procedure in the sense that the access to the ureter becomes easier if they have been receiving Flomax for a week before the surgery. So, for me, I, I like to keep them on Flomax for that reason because if I'm go, if I'm gonna access the kidney stone, I like uh, for them to be on the medication for a week. Is it necessary for a two millimeter stone at the UVJ? Uh, I think you know when we prescribe it, we're most likely treating the doctor, not the patient. You know because that stone will most likely pass whether we whether we give it or not. We have to be very careful when we prescribe it in in in, in women because you know there's a contraindication with pregnancy. Flomax is not approved. Uh, in uh, in pregnant patients, and also we should not underestimate the uh, side effects of Flomax. Flomax can be, you know, we, we we prescribe it a lot for BPH and retention. But the, but if you if you talk to patients, you know, you will realize that 
the morbidity of the medication is significant from fatigue to a runny nose to uh, to 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 retrograde ejaculation and sexual side effects uh, you know a lot of people will stop it you know because they just can't take it and dizziness <clears throat> sorry so you know i'm i'm personally not a big medication guy I, i i like to avoid it but in the context of a expulsion you know of an expulsive medical therapy yes i do i do support the, the prescription of flomax especially in the group between 5 and 10 mm interesting thank you fadl uh, especially on the side effects of of of, of um um flomax uh, thank you yeah. for that you know in emerge we only see the patient most of the time in emerge and we don't follow on them so maybe yeah. we're not very cognizant on the side effects so th- thank you for sharing that um, of course yeah fadl i'll move to the red flags and and you know uh, when you see red flags in this context is is, is uh, uh, you, you're going to think when uh, should i call urology early on So yeah. what are the red flags besides what we discussed? Yeah, so excellent point. So the reason why I mentioned the 60% presentation of the system is to show you or to tell you that, you know, this is the norm. So if you if you put a bell curve, you know, whoever is in that bell curve should be a 5 to 10 millimeter stone in the distal ureter. Anything that's not in that bell curve, anything that's not within that 6 centimeter of the distal ureter on the initial presentation, should uh, we should be a little bit more careful so larger stones if i have a stone that's more than one centimeter in the ureter i should involve urology even if it's distant okay and even if the pain is okay because a one centimeter stone it's unlikely to pass on its own and these are the patients who will benefit from an early intervention so the first thing i would say stone size okay more than one centimeter i will have a very low threshold at least to call them you know and say hey guys you know take a look at the scan because i'm not convinced that this is that this patient will do well uh, on her own so that's number one. uh number two, location okay location 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 so a proximal ureter stone that's obstructive should always be we should always be very careful uh now yes you can make the argument that all stone at some point become proximal or start proximal and then becomes uh uh distal obviously but the reality is that If you have an impacted proximal ureter stone, the risk of infection is higher, the risk of kidney injury is higher, and the risk of significant morbidity from a potential stricture is higher. So let's say a patient comes in and he says, I've been having pain for three months. You scan them, and the stone is stuck in that proximal ureter. That stone is unlikely to move because it has been there for a while, and it's still very proximal up. So there's something that's blocking it. So when you have a proximal ureter stone, I will have a very, very, very low threshold Uh, of of calling urology early on, even if the pain is under control. Now, if you combine the two, if you have a large proximal ureter stone, that's even another reason to to really try and uh, and uh, and and get urology involved. Hydronephrosis. So, hydronephrosis should be present in 50% of the acute obstruction. So, if someone comes in acutely obstructed and there is no hydro, it doesn't mean the kidney is not obstructed. It just means that the kidney didn't have time yet to show hydronephrosis. So But there's 50% chance of having hydro acutely. However, if you do have hydronephrosis, this means that this is a chronic obstruction. This obstruction has been there for a while. And we know that with silent obstruction of the kidney, you can actually lose the kidney function. You can lose the kidney completely simply by, 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 you know, by, uh, by having a, a, a silent obstruction. So the second you, sh- you, know, you see that there's a significant hydro on the scan, uh, I would involve urology. And tell them, hey guys, you know, I'm concerned about this kidney. Take a look. 
Obviously, we spoke about septic stones. That's a medical emergency. This needs to be assessed and evaluated as quickly as possible by the urologist. Uh, and, you know, we can talk about the management of this in a second. Um, but other, you know, other uh, red flags, bilateral urethral stones. So if you have someone who comes in with a bilateral urethral stone, uh, that's definitely something to be concerned about because these patients can develop anuria, complete anuria and acute renal failure because they, you know, they just cannot have any urine coming out. So I will involve urology even if the pain is under control. Solitary kidney. If you have a solitary kidney with an obstructive urethral stone, again, or a kidney stone, actually, I will have a very low threshold to involve them from the get-go. Uh, and uh, and if the patient is failing medical management, right? If, if you have a distal stone, but that's the third presentation to the emergency, that's a sign that this patient needs something to be done. You know, there's a limit to what we can do at an outpatient procedure. So if someone bounces back, even if it's a small stone and even if it's distal, I will have a very low threshold to 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 involve urology as well. So the, these, I would say, are the um, are the red flags to me as an endourologist uh, on who are the patients that you know really require uh, more care and more intervention uh, early on. Thank you for that. That's, that. Honestly, this is very informative. Uh, some of, of these uh, red flags I didn't know myself. So, for example, uh, some nurse teaching was you can use bulkers to see hydronephrosis. And if you see hydronephrosis, maybe you don't need a scan. But now you're telling me if it's a big hydronephrosis, uh, then maybe you should involve urology early on. So uh, that's yeah. Thank you. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, because Aldo, you, you know, hydronephrosis is an anatomical finding. You know, hydro does not necessarily mean obstruction. You know, hydro can, you know, we can see hydro with reflux, for instance. We can see it with a double J. But in the association with an obstruction, so if you do have a stone and you have hydro, so it's a ticking bomb. Because technically what's happening is that the skin is losing nephrons. So you, you really want to try to kind of intervene as soon as you can. Nice. Excellent. Father, I'll move on to, the, before the episode, you're telling me there are new techs that might change uh, the gameplay and, 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 and managing kidney stones, especially in Emerge. You, you want to yes. share? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So, uh, I mean, you know, we know the, 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 current, um, the current situation now of managing kidney stones. We, you know, if a patient is okay to be managed at home, they go home as we discussed and they have to stay we offer them upfront ureteroscopy, so we go in with a with a with a telescope and we we either bask in the stone or we laser it, or we have you know more advanced procedures like percutaneous procedures and whatnot, and we also have the shockwave procedure, which is the which is the kind of least invasive, but it still needs a hospital admission. What's what's really what's really fun now is that uh, so there's two there's two big things happening in the world of stones. The first technique or the first technology actually has been developed at the University of Washington in Seattle, and it's called burst wave lithotripsy, BWL. And BWL is a new technique that was developed by a, a joint efforts between physicists and endurologists and like stone specialists, where they developed a portable burst wave device. So a burst wave, it's a bit different than an ultrasound wave and a bit different than shock wave. But the, but the concept is the same. It's a bit like when you throw uh, a rock in a lake and it creates all those waves that kind of happen. So technically what it takes, it takes a generator, and then this generator will, 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 will generate shocks, and these shocks will be delivered to the stone. What's really amazing about this technology is that they have been doing, obviously, a lot of in vitro studies. Recently, they published their in vivo study about either breaking the stone in the emergency department or relocating the stone. Meaning, they studied, I think, 20, 
five patients with an acute presentation of a urethral stone, whether proximal or distal. Simply, they come to the emergency, they go, they bring the machine with them. No anesthesia, no sedation. It's an ultrasound transducer with a burst wave generator. They put it on the patient, they locate the stone, and they treat it right away. For distal stones, they can either break it or push it in the bladder, which, which technically, you know, saves, which would technically, you know, help pass the stone, obviously. For the proximal stone, they can relocate the stone in the kidney, meaning they can push it back in the kidney. Because again, the pain is not from the stone, but it's from the acute obstruction. And they actually managed to do it on quite a bit of patients. You know, they managed to push and relocate the stone in lifetime. So this is a huge change for, for stones because this means that you're able to offer patients a portable, on-the-go, definitive management, or at least a more serious management in the, in the emergency room. Interesting. Uh, without anesthesia. So I think this is a, you know, a very, very nice kind of uh, advances where I think it's moving along uh, and we should, you know, we should hear about it, you know, at some point soon. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not, so there's clinical trials now, but we're not at the marketing stage yet. Um, that's the first technology. The other technology, which is very interesting, that I'm more aware of, that was developed by my mentor at UCSF, and it's called uh, uh, tagged uh, air bubbles. And the concept is that, you know, in a combination between uh, scientists from UCSF and Caltech, they developed these air bubbles that are tagged uh, to a phospholipid, and this, and you know, and these air bubbles can be injected. Uh, through a five French catheter in the ureter. Now, what these air bubbles do is that because they have this this, this phospholipid attachments, they go and they uh, they 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 uh, they have an affinity to get on the stone. So, meaning all these bubbles will will kind of uh, condense on the stone, and they use an external transducer to activate these bubbles. So, what they do is that these bubbles will eventually kind of pop but they pop in a perpendicular way. So they go up and then they pop and eventually they, they create a crack in the stone. What the goal is the same, is to perform an on-the-go lithotripsy for an outpatient procedure that you can do in your office or you can do simply in the emergency department. They, there is uh, clinical one trials that, uh, uh, or phase one clinical trials that, uh, uh, that already uh, you know passed the FDA, and I think soon they will start doing the uh, the, the the more advanced clinical trials. Wow! So I think yeah, I think the, these you know these very nice new technologies. Because if you think about it, you know there was no change in the stone disease world in the last twenty years. You know, so I think that's very exciting now that there's new technology that will truly change the uh, the course of of this disease. Yeah, totally agree. I, I'm mind blown, uh, actually. Yeah. So imagine uh, me as an emergency physician, for example, if I have enough training that I can lice a stone. Uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, if you you know if you're an emergency physician and you put casts for orthopedic fractures, you know, I mean, think about it like this. You know, someone comes in with a with a stone disease. You're trained to do it. You put the ultrasound. You shut the stone. You're done. Awesome. You know. So so you you actually treat the patient. You know, and not just you know, and not just. Uh, like give so, pain medications and then maybe, yeah exactly and then wait and delay care etc exactly. exactly that's very interesting Fabul, that's been very very informative uh, I know how busy you are but I thank you on behalf of myself first 
and the listeners that are going to listen to this podcast and I'm sure it's going to add so much for their information. Uh, until yeah, listen, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. And, you know, that's why I wanted to, you know, to talk about kidney stones because people think that kidney stones are a straightforward uh, topic. It is, of course, but at the same time, there's a lot of nuances. And I think it's important to kind of understand these nuances. And, you know, when we see a kidney stone, not all kidney stones are the same and not any renal colic is the same. And it's important as an emergency physician to appreciate these nuances and to kind of treat them accordingly. Totally agree. Totally agree. And and quite honestly, when we're discussing, I, 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 that was my impression initially. And as we're going through the, the episode, I'm like, oh, wow, I learned a lot today. So <laughs> thank you very much, Fadl. My pleasure. My pleasure, Mustafa. Anytime. I'm happy that we finally managed to uh, to do it. Yeah, me too. I'll see you soon, my brother. Thanks. Okay, man. Thank you.